I'd ask you to take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled Ready. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we will give you a Bible before you leave today that you can take. And we want you to see where we're learning this stuff from. I don't want you to think that I'm coming up with all these ideas and, and these words. We're wanting to know what the Word of God has to say. And if you're following along in the pew Bible this morning, you'll find our passage on page 987. So with that, let's turn to First Thessalonians this morning which we have been in a series talking about ready. And what we're going to learn today is that we need to be ready um, to share uh, the love of Christ and the, the Word of Christ in ways that maybe sometimes we don't even think. In the last week, you know, uh, it's amazing during sermons. I can tell how involved you are in sermons by your attention spans, okay? And last week we talked on the subject of sex, and man, everybody was right on. Eyes were big and open, and we were listening with bated breath last week. And today, uh, we kind of come off of that, uh, of that uh, place of, uh, of really in tune with what's going on in our culture and all of that to something that may seem a little bit boring. I mean, really, after talking about a subject matter as, as intense as the issue of, of sex and sexual immorality within our culture, to come now to a place where we're talking about loving one another and, and uh, serving one another and, and living different in the world around us and, and working hard in your job seems to be a bit of a letdown. But I want you to know that just as important as it is for us to please God with regards to our sexual purity, it is just as important that we live out these truths in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And so we're going to look at this text and ask the question this morning. The question that I want to be able to answer is, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? I was brought up to that uh, question this last week as I was watching one of the news programs talking about the evangelical vote in this political campaign. And they told us that uh, 75% of South Carolinians who were a part of a primary yesterday define themselves as evangelical Christians. And the anchor on the program said, can we just stop and ask a question? What is a Christian? Because the way they vote, it would seem that their voting record is all over the place. The issues that are most important to them seem to be all over the place. So, so can someone, and he was kind of frustrated, can someone tell me what a Christian is? To which the individual said, it's a person who affirms the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I thought about that, and I said, okay, I, I, there's more to it than that. I think that even the demons can in some ways affirm the teachings of Jesus Christ, right? They know who Jesus is, and the Bible says they even shudder at the fact that Jesus is who he is, and, and uh, they know that, they've, they've lived that out, it's real in their lives. And so being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a Christian, seemingly is a much larger thing than that. And so I went on my own investigation. What is a Christian? I went to the dictionary. A Christian is one who adheres to the teachings of Jesus. So we got the Webster's definition of it. But there's something more than that, I would think. So then I began to ask the question, is a Christian one who, who goes to church, who's been baptized, who, who participates in communion, who serves in the body, who gives to the church? Uh, that most definitely is a Christian. It's seen in our action. But then I thought, okay, but a person could do all of those things with no heart to following Jesus Christ, right? They could do it because their mom told them to do it, right? Or, or because it makes their spouse happy or makes their parents happy. We can do a lot of activities that we hate at the very core of, of, who, of what they are in, in our own lives. 
and yet do them to appease others or, or to play games. And so it can't be simply just serving and giving and all of that. So what is a Christian? What is a Christian and, and what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I put down a definition that, that I'm wrestling with, and I'm sure it doesn't involve everything that, that we would uh, say a Christian is, but, but I want to use this as a working definition. And you can write this down. It's not in your outlines. But a Christian is someone who believes all Scripture says about Christ and his sacrifice for us, who as a result walks with him and seeks to please him in all that we say and do. Now, what that means is there is a level of belief. We have to believe. There are certain things and truths we have to affirm. But it's simply not just doing or believing certain things, but it's taking what we believe and what Christ has done for us and, and allowing that to have ramifications that reverberate in our lives. That based on what Christ has done for me, I was a sinner in need of grace. God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins and through his death, burial, and resurrection has given me the pardon from sin and now a relationship with God. Now, as a result of that, in response to that, I live a life of gratitude saying, thank you, God. Thank you for this gift, this amazing grace that we just sang about, this amazing grace that saved us. Thank you, God, for it. Now, in response, I'm going to walk with you, which speaks of an issue of intimacy, of love, and it also speaks of wanting to please you. Paul says in our passage last week that we are called to walk in him and please him. That word please we learned last week is the Greek word aresko. Aresko literally means to accommodate oneself to another's needs, desires, and plans. And so a Christian is one who affirms all that God has said about Christ and his sacrifice in the scriptures, and then who makes it his goal or her goal in life to live out this Oresco kind of life. This life that says, God, I'm second to you in all that I say and do. My will, my plan, my uh, pleasures, my desires, my dreams are all secondary to what your plans, your wills, your desires are for me. So I'm not going to speak until I know that what I'm going to say is going to work in line according to your will. I'm not going to do something unless I know that it is going to please you, that it's going to accommodate myself and my plans to your will and plan. So a follower of Jesus Christ is going to reorder themselves in such a way that they are going to follow Christ and his leadership in every decision in every word that is shared, so that we can please him in all that we say and do. Paul tells us that the way we walk with God and please God involves not doing certain things. In our text last week, we learned that pleasing God and walking with him means we cannot be involved in sexual immorality. And it's clear. And so we can't sit here and, 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 and play games with our, uh, our sexuality and think that we're going to be okay and please God in the process. So he says, don't do this. This is one way. This is the will of God. Don't do this. But with every don't there is in Scripture, the Bible gives multiple do's. And the do's that we're going to hear today, there's no don'ts. There's do's. Do this. Do that. 
Don't do it as a, just a simply uh, a response of the duty you've been given, but do it because of the heart of gratitude, because God has saved me through his son, Jesus Christ, because he's placed me in the local church, I get the opportunity to not live in sexual morality and to love people, to live in light of Christ's um, goodness in my life, and to go to work and be the best employee that I can be. And that's what Paul articulates in verses 9 through 12. And so let's look to the scripture this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we've instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let me pray. Father God, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be Christians this morning. That it wouldn't be just a casual definition, but that it would again reverberate into every aspect of who we are. So that we might please you, and we might walk more closely with you, as a result, we know that in walking with you and be and living a life that pleases you, we know there's great benefit and joy that can come. So, Lord, that is our desire and that is our focus today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Three things this morning of what it means to be a Christian, Paul says. First of all, a Christian is one who loves greatly. A Christian is one who loves greatly. What Paul is articulating this morning isn't something new. Paul isn't even sharing something that's original to him. In fact, what Paul is sharing to the Thessalonians and to us today is a reminder of what Jesus Christ himself taught his disciples. Write this passage down, John 13. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. And he's answering questions and he's sharing what the life and and follower of Jesus Christ looks like. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, listen, a new commandment I give you. The 12 disciples would have readily understood what that meant. They were Jews. And they knew what Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. Ten commandments. And so they knew when Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment, this was big. This was coming from God. This was something that that you would put your life uh, in accordance with. You know, the the commandments weren't suggestions. They were things that people were called to do. If you were going to be a follower of Yahweh, you need to live out those commands. And now Jesus is saying, I give you a new one. Their ears are perked up. They're listening. What's the new commandment? John 13, 34 says, love one another. You need to love one another. What this means in this new commandment is that love is going to be the embodiment of the Christian life. That whatever you do, wherever you go, no matter who you're involved with, love is going to be your response in all ways and in all things. But Jesus goes on and he says, okay, listen, this love that is to be embodied in all these different ways, meaning love is the way you're to talk, Love is the way you're to react and respond. 
Love is how you're to respond to your uh, closest relationships of a spouse or your children. Love is to be shown to your extended family. Love is to be shown to the person that maybe you have some casual engagement with. Love is to be shown even to your stranger. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love our enemies. It involves all of it. And Jesus says, here's why. The reason why I want you to love is because the world, he says in verse 35, will know you are my disciples because you love one another. What Jesus articulates there is that our greatest evangelistic tool is not our missions program, it's not our Awana program, it's not our uh, Sunday school ministry, it's not the preaching of, of God's Word. What, what Jesus says is a mouthful there, that none of that will be any good. It'll just be programs if we're not loving one another. What it means is that the world will stand up and take notice when they see Christians loving each other. Now why would that be the case? Remember, Paul has just talked on the subject of sexual immorality. More specifically, what Paul has said is be careful not to allow lust to um, destroy your relationship with God. Don't let it distract you from your relationship with God. Don't let it get in between your relationship with God. Well, what is lust? Lust is selfishness at the core. Lust says, I have these feelings, I have these desires, I have these wants. And I will do whatever it takes to accomplish pleasing myself. I will do what it takes to make sure I feel good, I feel right, that my desires and wants are are achieved and taken care of. And Paul says, okay, the world who does not know God in our passage last week says, they live desiring all these things out of control, saying it's me, 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 me. And that's easy to see in our culture today. Turn on the television. Look at the ads. It's about your comfort. It's about your pleasure. It's about all of the things that that, that take care of us. Buy this car and you'll be happy. Buy this home and you'll be happy. Buy this product and you'll be happy. It's all about you. It's all about me. Paul now flips and he says, listen, you can't live selfishly lusting after things, whether it's sexually or all manner of other things. Paul says the job of the Christian It's not to lust selfishly, but to love sacrificially. Does that make sense? That the way we look at life, the way we live our life, is through the lens of love. And so Paul says, okay, here's how I want you to live out this love. What kind of love is it? Is it a romantic love? Well, well, he tells us. This love, notice in verse uh, verse, uh, 9, says, Brotherly love. Let me help you out. You guys are all Greek scholars and you don't know it. Brotherly love is the compound uh, of two Greek words, phileo and adelphoi. Phileo is a certain kind of love. Adelphoi is um, brother. You put those two together, you get the phrase Philadelphia. And we know of the city of Philadelphia being the city of... You're all Greek scholars. Okay? Paul says, here, here's the love I want you to have. I want you to have the love of brothers, the love of family. Literally, uh, Philadelphia speaks of a love that comes from the same womb. What it means is, is that you've got a kinship. My brothers and I come from the same womb. And because of that, we're family. 
And, and blood is thicker than water and all of those phraseologies. We're, we're a family unit and, and we're going to stick together. In the good times and the bad times, it's, it's going to happen. And as Christians, we're not born of the same mother. We come from different backgrounds. That's seen in our skin color. It's seen in where we grew up. It's seen in the culture. It's uh, seen in our preferences. I mean, we're not monolithic in any way, shape, or form as a people. And yet, what we're told is that we are to love one another as if we come from the same womb. Well, what's the same womb that we've come from? If we don't come from the same mom, then where do we come from? We come from the same Father in heaven. We come from the same Spirit that birthed in us the new birth, the regenerating birth. We have living within us the Spirit of Almighty God. And because of that, you and I now have the unique opportunity to love in such a way that the world will say, wait a minute, I thought living in this world was taking care of self. And I watch you over and over again take care of others. One of uh, uh, Amanda's uh, sister-in-laws, it comes from a very uh, non-religious background, has no real interest in the things of God, and here's the one thing that we continually have an inroad in our evangelism to her. She is amazed at what she sees in the love relationship that we have with the people of this church. It blows her away. She sees that through Facebook and stuff like that, she hears of her own testimony, uh, especially during the time of Amanda's cancer surgery, uh, of just how this church rallied around us and cared for us. And, and she looks around and goes, I don't see a world like that. Sugar Grove must just be the nicest place in the world to live. They must just be flocking to Sugar Grove because this community is full of people. We say, wait a minute, no. Sugar Grove is just as selfish as Buffalo Grove where you live. But the difference is, we are a part of a body of Christ where people love us with a brotherly love. And we come from different places and backgrounds, and it doesn't matter. They love us, and we love them, and we'll go great distances to serve them and to honor them and to minister to them. And, and, and my sister-in-law sits there and says, I want that. But she'll say, but I don't want Jesus with it. And here's the thing. You can't have one without the other. You can't have brotherly love and not have Jesus being a part of it. Why? Because the Bible tells us, listen, God is love. You see, love is, is in the heart of God. It is who God is. And, and, and we cannot, listen, we cannot get love from anybody else. We don't conjure love up in our own self. It comes from God. And even unbelievers who in tainted ways love their spouse and in tainted ways love their kids and in tainted ways love their neighbor, they show the imprint of God's common grace to them that they can experience as a gift from God even to the unbeliever an ability in some small ways to experience what love is. But as believers, because the Spirit lives in us, because the God whom we now have been uh, begotten from through Jesus Christ is love. And he allows us what, what is the Greek word agape love, a godlike love, to show one another. But what that means is we have to be empowered by the Spirit of God. 
So maybe today you find yourself and you're not loving your wife or you're not loving your husband or you're not loving your kids or you're not loving the extended family or the people in the church or you're not loving the employees that you work with. And you say, well, well, something's wrong with me. And I would say, yes, there is. You are not living out the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. It's there. You've been empowered. We learned in verse 8 that the Spirit of God is in you. And so you have that capability. But you have to make a decision, and I have to make a decision. I am going to love. But how do we do it? Well, the way we do it is we model what Christ modeled for us. Well, how do we know what love looks like? God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. In fact, we fought against it, and what God did was he lavished his love upon us that he would make us his children. So he demonstrates it for us. He empowers us with it. How do we live it out? I wish I had time. I don't have time. There's a hundred different verses on how we are to live out loving one another. The Bible tells us that the way that we love one another is by living out the one another commands throughout Scripture. Dozens of commands, dozens upon dozens of commands of to do this and to do that towards one another so that we might show love. And here's a couple things we need to know about the one another commands. First of all, you cannot live the one another commands out in isolation. I cannot one another myself, right? I can't do it. I can't admonish one another and not be the only person in the room. I can't encourage one another and me be by myself. So it reminds us that the Christian walk is not a Lone Ranger walk, but a life that's lived in community. And so maybe you're here today and say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his people. You've got a problem. Because you really don't know who Jesus is then. Because you're saying, I like Jesus, and I I love Jesus, and he's my priority. But the very thing he taught me to do, I'm unwilling to do. And so what we need to understand is that uh, to live out the one another commands means you have to live out in community. The second thing about the love of one another commands is that it reminds us that we are not to love a certain group of people. It does not say, and live out the one another commands to people that look like you, people of the same age, same economic background, people with the same hobbies. It says one another. Well, who are the one another? They're the people in the church, the body of Christ. It means that we need to grow in priority our focus. Paul says 19 times, listen, 19 times in the book of 1 Thessalonians alone, another nine times in 2 Thessalonians, he calls the people in Thessalonica brothers. Not people, not friends, not buddies, not hey you, brothers. And he says, I have to make you a priority. You have to be a priority if we're going to do this thing together. So how do we do it? The scripture's chock full of it. The one another commands. Let me throw on the screen for you what it means to love greatly. And I know you can't read all of those, and so we're going to read them together. And I know it'll take a moment. But I want you to see all the different ways that we are called to love one another. So let's start at the top there. Welcome. So just think about it. And as you're walking through these, how am I doing? How am I doing at this stuff? So let's ask. Are you welcoming one another? Do you greet one another? 
Do you agree with one another? Are you patient with one another? Do you comfort one another? Do you serve one another? Do you submit to one another? Do you admonish one another? Do you sing to one another? How about fellowshipping with one another? Are you kind to one another? Do you do not grumble against one another? Do you forgive one another? Do you confess your sins to one another? Do you bear burdens with one another? Do you do good to one another? How about do you care for one another? Are you humble to one another? Do you keep loving one another? Are you truthful to one another? Do you not do not judge one another? Pray for one another. Honor one another. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Teach one another. Show hospitality to one another. Live in peace with one another. Encourage one another. I know this next one's a hard one. While eating, wait for one another. Build up one another. Take a moment and ask yourself, do I really love the people that are sitting around me? Now, I get that there will be times in people's lives where you'll have more opportunities than this. But I want you to know that even in the small things that we do, in the welcoming and the greeting of one another, we're showing the brotherly love that they, they were being called to in 1 Thessalonians. And some of it has to do with the heart. Some of it has to do in action. And here's the thing about the one another, the final thing about the one another commands. The one another commands force us as Christians to recognize this important truth. That love simply cannot be expressed only through words. I wrote this down, and I think this is helpful. That love alone cannot simply be expressed in words, but must be exhibited in action. I can't tell my wife or my children I love them and then show them no exhibit of that love. Because the second time I say I love you and then treat them like trash, they'll say, wait a minute, you're a liar. You don't love me. And so with the one another command is, is ways for us to put the, our money where our mouth is that we truly do love one another and we don't simply just tell people we love them, but we live it out. What, what God wants us to know in this passage is that love is to be a verb. It is to be lived out. We are to love greatly. That's what it means to be a Christian. Notice Paul moves on to the second thing, to live differently. A Christian lives differently. The second characteristic is, is that we live different than that of the world. Paul's already said that. We don't live like the pagans who do not know God. We live in controlled lives. And so we control our sexuality in that way. And now we live differently and it's going to impact how we engage in the world around us. So Paul in point one focuses in on the church. Paul in point two says, now look at your response, your, your engagement with the world. And he says this, aspire, verse 11, to live quietly. In other words, make your ambition to have no ambition. Well, that just seems odd. Just, what a paradox. What he's saying is, is you live in such a way that whatever your ambition is, it's really not your ambition, it's God's ambition. So whatever God says, you're willing to fall in line with. 
This idea of living quietly speaks of a Sabbath rest. It speaks of a cessation of work. You're ceasing from your work. It speaks of a peace plan that ends warfare. It speaks to the end of conflict. And what these words help us to do, you sit there and say, what does it mean to live a quiet life? You just told me, Tim, at the beginning of the sermon that I should uh, take somebody out to the movies and show them uh, a movie about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You're telling me to be bold. Now you're telling me to be quiet. You're sending mixed signals here. What Paul means by living a quiet life is to keep us from doing things that will cause us harm. And here are the three things. Write this down. First of all, living differently means it keeps us from being impetuous. Impetuous. Well, what does that mean? Well, Tim's trying to use a big word. Hooked on phonics did work for me. Okay? Impetuous means to not be imprudent, to not be impulsive. You see, we live imprudent and impulsive lives as Christians. And here's how I know. The number one thing we hear as a staff when we say, hey, would you mind ministering in this way um, for the gospel of Christ, whether serving in a particular role or, or being a part of some ministry, the number one excuse we hear is, I'm too busy. Now I get that there are things that we need to be doing, but, but our calendar shouldn't be so busy that the one that we say is the precedent or the, the priority is the one that gets the scraps in our calendar. And if I was to ask many of you this morning, what is the tyranny of the urgent in your life? You would look at your calendar and you would look at all the activities, all your comings and goings over this next week. And I would ask the question, as I ask my own self this question, as I live a very busy life, what are we accomplishing? I read biographies. And one of the things I'm always amazed with in biographies, and I'm talking way back before many of the modern technologies that we have, I'm always amazed at how much those people actually got done, right? And they had to walk everywhere. They didn't have a car. They didn't have electricity. They had to hunt for their food. They couldn't drive up to a window and get it. And yet they had sweeter times with God they did more for the kingdom of God. And I sit there and say, but wait a minute. We have all the technology. We're able to multitask in all these different ways. Listen to what multitasking is. I heard this definition and I like it. Multitasking is the ability to do a ton of things and accomplish nothing. And so we multitask. We have in the palm of our hand more technology than what put men on the moon. Did you know that? More power, more memory, more, and we don't accomplish anything more than we ever did before. We are just distracted. And what it does is it causes us to be impetuous. We're going here, we're going there, we're thinking we're accomplishing all these different things. And in the end, we're just spinning our tires. And Paul tells them, live quiet lives. Well, how does living a quiet life keep you from being impetuous? It reminds you that God has a will and plan for your life. So when you look at your calendar this week, ask this question. What is God's will and plan for me? Now, does that mean you scratch out all the basketball practices? I'm just telling you where we're living right now. All the different things that are going on in the Badal home? No, 
but it may cause us to pull back from some things maybe. Maybe instead of just going and being part of those things, we start looking at the gospel opportunities that are inherent within it. You know, basketball games and and baseball games and, and kids' events are great for the kingdom of God because it gives you great opportunities instead of sitting in your car waiting for your kid to come out to go reach out to your neighbor. And not to be bouncing from place to place and not really caring because you're just, your neighbors are just a bunch of boats that are passing in the night, just going to and fro, but actually engaging yourself in the life of that coach, in the life of that choir director, in the life of that, that person that's engaged with your kids. Not just running from place to place, looking as a salesman that your, your calling isn't just to get the sales calls done, but to actually have an impact into the life of the people that you're trying to get business from or maintain business with how can i honor these people how can i care for these people how can i minister to these people instead of just being impetuous going from activity to activity how can i put god's stamp of approval on it by living a quiet life notice second it keeps us from being anxious anxious instead of constantly being worried about the ups and downs of life a quiet life is a life that is at rest knowing God is in control. Trials teach us this. There was no greater understanding of this truth than than when my wife was dealt bad medical news. There was nothing I could do about it. And either I could yell and scream about it, or I could say, God, you got a plan, and I'm going to get in line with this plan, even if it hurts me at times, because I know it's better to be hurting personally with you than to live a life of luxury without you and so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna put myself in there and not be anxious not be worried about the ups and downs not be worried about what about this and what about that i'm gonna trust you god that you know what is best a quiet life tells the world that you believe in the sovereignty of god that you believe in a god who controls everything and a God who has great plans for you and the ones he loves. Keeps you from being impetuous, keeps you from being anxious, and probably the most important thing, keeps you from being obnoxious. Obnoxious. As Christians, we can be obnoxious. This is a good amen. We can be obnoxious. And we need to be careful. But we have the gospel, you say. And we're supposed to share the gospel with Jesus Christ, with everybody we come into contact with. Um, i got to be honest with you. I don't see that in Scripture. What I see in Scripture is, Lord, make a way for us. Lord, when the opportunity is right, let us make the most of that opportunity. Our job, listen, is not to shove the Bible down everybody's throats. Our job isn't to tell everybody they're a sinner and on their way to hell. If it was, listen, if that was what our job was, Jesus' ministry would have been very different. Jesus would have had a much larger ministry than the area of the foothills of Palestine, right? There's a whole lot more people in the world. Jesus, the Son of God, he should have known better than anybody. There was a whole bunch of of, of people in the Far East that needed to know about his gospel. But Jesus recognized that I have been placed in a certain place by the will of the Father, 
I've been given a task of engaging with a certain group of people in my surroundings in a particular cultural setting, and, and the Lord has called me to that. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord may not call us to missions and all of that, but what we must recognize is the Bible tells us that God has placed us in certain places and in certain times for a particular purpose. So, what is your mission field? Your mission field is to be the best person you can be in the surroundings that you find yourself, so that, and that's an important so that, when the gospel opportunity comes, you're ready to present it. And so you live your life in a godly way, you live your life in a quiet way, knowing that God will give an opportunity, and you are ready to give the reason for the hope you have, but you do so with gentleness and respect. And so every day you live your life, is a gospel day. Whether you're doing a good job of proclaiming the gospel in your comings and goings is one thing. But you're portraying a gospel. My neighbors are seeing a gospel. And you know where they're seeing it? Listen, not right now. Oh, I can wish that they would watch my videos on the internet. They don't know any of that. They know every Sunday I go, and they know I'm a preacher, but they don't know much more than that. But here's what they do know. Does he love his wife? How does he treat his kids? Are they living a quiet life or are they obnoxious people? Do we hate that the Badals live next door to us? Or are they a blessing? When Tim goes to work, is the guy in the cubicle next to him angry that I'm next to that guy? I wish I could find a different partner. Are my employees at 5B saying, you know what? I wish I had a different boss, because that guy's obnoxious. Every time we talk about anything, he's got to shove the Bible down our throat. I just want to work for a living and provide for my family, and this guy's on a Billy Graham crusade. Or are they saying, you know what? Probably the best, listen to me, the best, the best um, affirmation I ever got was in a conversation with an employee of mine named Danny. Danny will tell you, he thinks you all are weird. Danny will tell you, man, you guys have lost it. You've fallen off your rocker, this whole Jesus thing. Are you kidding me? You've blown it. You've missed it. But Danny, in a, in, a, in a problem in his life, came into my office one day. And he said the following. And some of you know Danny. And this will shock you if you knew who I was talking about. Danny came in, and he was hurting, and he sought some advice and he says, I've never said this before, but he said, I don't buy your Jesus stuff, but I sure am glad you do. Because it makes you a better boss. You care about us. You go the extra mile for us. I wanted to hug the guy, but if you know Danny, you don't hug Danny, okay? You don't do that. Danny's a tattooed guy. He's, you don't hug Danny. And I want it to be your goal. To live such a quiet life, settled, not impetuous, not anxious, not obnoxious, because, listen, God promises that gospel opportunities are going to come. And in that moment, when you articulate the truth of Scripture, will they look and say, wait a minute, what did you just say? Are you the same guy? The same girl? 
that's been sitting in my, next to my cubicle all these days? Because I don't hear that coming out of your mouth any other time. You want me to go see some Jesus movie? You told me you went to go see that other movie. Wait a minute, this doesn't balance out. Live quiet lives. And Paul says, now, mind your own business. Mind your own business. How often have we wanted to tell somebody that? People ask us nosy questions. They butt into private conversations. They want to give unsolicited advice. And we want to yell at the top of our lungs, mind your own business. Get out of my life. Paul, in the second letter to the Thessalonians, tells the people that he's heard that many of them are busybodies. Well, what's a busybody? What, what does it mean to be a busybody? Well, let me tell you what the manifestation of busybody is. Busybodies gossip. So if you're involved in gossip, if you love to hear what's going on in other people's lives, you're a busybody. Might I add, and again, I'll get a lot of flack for this, we love being busybodies. Some of our biggest shows on TV are reality shows where we're involved in the lives of who? Other people. We have this weird voyeuristic idea that we like to watch other people. We hate having a fight with our family, but we sure do love watching other people fight. I hated getting spankings as a kid, but I, man, I really enjoyed when my buddies were going to get it from their mom and dad. Give me a chair. Let me set up. Let me watch this thing. We're busybodies. We don't mind our own business. And why does Paul say this? Number one, listen, being a busybody means you're getting into the life of other people, and whether you know this or not, the life of other people is filled with garbage just like your life is. And so we get into other people's lives, and what do we do? We start picking through other people's trash. Let me ask you, when was the last time our trash day is uh, Sunday night, it comes, trash comes on Monday, you go out to your neighbor's trash and start looking through, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, look, they, they had pizza the other night. Oh, this is wonderful. This comes from the bathroom. Okay, this... Okay? Why don't we do that? Because it's gross, right? We got our own trash. And Paul says, don't get involved in other sinners' trash. You got your own stuff to worry about. We tell our children this all the time. They get involved in each other's lives. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. You want to just, just drive far away from all that kind of garbage. And what do you say to your children? Mind your own business. You've got enough to worry about on your own. Paul tells us this so that we'll focus in on what the primary is. And the primary is your own walk in this world with Christ. And if God gives you the opportunity to be engaged as he does as an elder, he gets me uh, incredible opportunities to have to wade through people's garbage. And it's hard. Ministry isn't easy because, listen, most of the time you're dealing with other people's issues and struggles, whether because of their own doing or because of trials and tribulations in your life. You're entering into the garbage of people's lives. Here's the thing. God will at times call you to be like Jesus. Jesus made, was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. He got involved in our garbage. But you better make sure you're called to it. And the Bible says that when you get involved in someone else's garbage, be careful that you don't fall into the garbage yourself. That you're there not for morbid curiosity, but you're there 
to pull them out and to bear their burdens. But outside of that calling, live a quiet life and mind your own business. One final imperative he gives us is to labor effectively. We won't spend a lot of time here because we're going to deal with this in 2 Thessalonians here in the next couple months after Easter. We'll address this passage. But Paul says, listen, you need to work with your hands, he says in verse 12. Work with your hands. That doesn't mean you all need to be blue-collar workers. I know we come from different backgrounds. Some of us are working with our hands. Others of us are using uh, our minds in in more ways. We're We're all working. What Paul is saying is, is that Wherever you find yourself, do it with all your heart. Now, what this doesn't say, listen, just real careful, this doesn't say that there isn't opportunities for issues of disability. It doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for a welfare system. What it says is if, it, if, if in all ways possible you are able to work, then work. Whether in the home, whether in the workplace, whether in Christian vocation or in some other um, uh, other secular type of, of job, your job is to work. And Paul has said this over and over again. You work for the favor of Christ as your boss, not the favor of the person you're working for. You work unto the Lord. And so Paul says you need to labor effectively. So you're not a drain on society, so that, that you're serving those around you, so you're showing love. I work so that my family can be provided for. By working, I show them I love them. And so what Paul says is you've got to work. In Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he says if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You've got to be working. God's called us to work. He did so in the Garden of Eden, even before sin. And it's our way to fellowship with God. It's our way to care for His creation. It's our way to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's our way to find fulfillment in this world. So let me ask you this question. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and I want to do this. I want to go with you. And I want to ask your employee, and fellow employees and your employer, hey, tell me about so-and-so. Did you know they're a follower of Jesus Christ? And I have a thought that maybe some of you this morning, if we were to go to your workplace and say, did you know so-and-so is a believer pointing to you, that there would be shock, laughter, an uneasiness of, wait a minute, that's not the guy or gal I know. How do we show the gospel in our workplace? If it isn't throwing tracks everywhere, let me tell you how you share the gospel in the first steps. You go, you get up tomorrow, you clean yourself up, you get in your car and you get to work on time, and the moment that you clock in to the moment you clock out, you give your boss and your company all of who you are. You devote yourself to accomplishing what has been given to you, and you do so by living out Christ's love and Christ's life and Christ's labor, working with all your might unto the Lord. So that, again, there's that so that, when the opportunity comes, you have cultivated the ground. In a couple of weeks here, we're going to see farmers. And the farmers are going to get, listen, one opportunity to drop seed into the ground, Right? And so do they just go out there and start throwing the seed like this on the hollowed ground? Or or do they 
uh, begin to break up the ground. They'll spend weeks in tilling up the ground and getting it prepared and cultivating it. Why? So that the seed will be taken care of. Then they throw the seed in the ground. And then they spend the rest of the summer fertilizing it and caring for it and pulling the weeds out of it and, and all of that. So a harvest will at one point be able to be harvested. We cultivate the ground. We cultivate the seed that is planted by living quiet, godly lives of love in the church and in our workplaces and communities so that when the gospel goes forth, it finds fertile ground. So you may not feel that you're an evangelist. Well, tomorrow you will be. Every day you are. Because you're amongst unbelievers and they are watching what you're doing. Why do we do this? Let me close with this. Two things. So you will win the respect of others, verse 12. That you will walk properly before outsiders. Listen, we don't have a gospel to share if we are not viewed by those outsiders as people worthy of respect. And so we better live it in a God-honoring way. We should do so to make sure that they see Christ in us, our hope of glory, and not ourselves. And we should do so so that we are dependent on no one. What that word dependent on no one means doesn't mean we're not dependent on each other to live the the life of Christ and the body of Christ. What it means is that we are not a drain on people being lazy while other people are working for us and serving us. God's given us two hands, he's given us two feet, he's given us the capacity of a working mind, and he says, I want you, as a creation of mine, to live out your purpose and plan. And that means you're going to love greatly, you're going to live differently, and you're going to labor in a way that's effective. Examine your heart this morning. Am I a Christian? I'm not asking that from a salvation standpoint. I'm asking that from a logistical standpoint. Are people seeing you as a follower of Jesus Christ because they're seeing these things lived out in your life? If not, then pray and confess that. And starting today and moving in tomorrow, that you would live differently as a result. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. And even though it may not be as flashy as the passage before us, Last week, this one is of great importance to us, and yet it is something that should easily um, be in our minds because we do this on a daily basis. So, Lord, I pray that uh, for this people and for this church, that just as many are loving in great ways, just as I know many are living differently and, and laboring in effective ways, that as Paul said, that this church would do so more and more. So empower us by your Spirit to go into the world and to find that balance of living quietly yet boldly, to find that balance of living um, lives that are unmistakable but not obnoxious, to find that balance of, of what it means to work hard and yet help to care for others. Lord, we need your help with regards to this. And I give this before these sensible people to make applications into their own lives so that they may honor you, walking with you and pleasing you in all that we say and do. So give us your spirit, Lord, to leave this place now and to be able to show this love to the people that are around us and to show your gospel both in word and deed 
the world of unbelievers that we will engage with in this week to come. I pray that we'll do so with great generosity, graciousness, and respect, knowing that that is the way you've called us to proclaim this truth. Now, Lord, send us forth in peace and in fellowship. We thank you for the time to be in your word and to be with your people. Now, let us leave this place a little different than the way we came in, for your glory and for your sake. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.